This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today we're doing The Witch, and I'm kicking us off. The Witch came out in 2015. It's Robert Eggers' first film, preceding The Lighthouse in 2019 and the recently released Northman. The Witch is set in 17th century New England. We start with a man named William. William lives in a Puritan town, and he's gotten into a theological dispute with the local authorities. He refuses to stop preaching, so they banish him into the wilderness. William takes his wife and his children with him. They include a teenage daughter, a preteen son, two young twins, and a baby. The teenage daughter is played by Anya Taylor-Joy. This was her first major role. She went on to star in the Netflix series Queen's Gambit and had a sizable role in Northman. The family doesn't work outside the city. In ancient Greece, the two institutions were always considered interdependent. When William takes his family into the wilderness, they swiftly find life very challenging. The baby mysteriously disappears. It wasn't baptized, and William's wife worries it's burning in hell. William trades his wife's family silver for supplies, but they prove insufficient. The family struggles to come up with enough food. The children catch on that things are going south. The preteen son tries to help by going off into the woods to check traps, but he gets kidnapped by what appears to be a witch. When he returns home, he's not right in the head, and after some shouting and thrashing about, he dies. The young twins accuse Anya's character of being a witch. She denies it and accuses the twins of conversing with the family's pet billy goat, which they call Black Philip. Unsure who to believe, the father boards up the goat pen, leaving the children stuck with the goats. Now both the parents really start to lose the plot. William breaks down and confesses to God that he made his family leave the village not because of sincere religious convictions, but due to his own pride and stubbornness. William's wife hallucinates the return of her son and baby. Meanwhile, in the goat pen, the witch shows up and kills the female goats and then turns on the twins. Anya is left unharmed. The next morning, William goes to check on the goat pen and finds it's been completely destroyed. He is then attacked and killed by Black Philip, that billy goat. William's wife comes out a short time later. She's convinced Anya must have done this, and she tries to hurt Anya. With no real alternative, Anya defends herself, killing her mother in the process. She then tries to talk to Black Philip, and Black Philip leads her into the woods, where she joins the coven of witches that was tormenting her family. Whatever William thought was wrong with the Puritan village, this fate is certainly worse. By putting his personal theological beliefs ahead of the good of the village, William condemns most of his children to a life in the wild that is nasty, brutish, and short. The one child that survives does so by joining a satanic coven. But at least the coven is a community of sorts. Ultimately, Anya's character is so miserable by the end of the film that any social structure is better than the mutilated husk of a family her father was leading. I often like to talk about pendulum problems, the tendency for people to try to solve one problem by creating a problem of the opposite kind. William is right to point out at the beginning of the film that the Puritan village was founded by people who left England out of religious commitment. How can a community founded by such people expect its own members to toe the line on religious matters? It is consistent with Puritanism for unorthodox Puritans to proudly and stubbornly go their own way. But if you leave the polity out of pride, you eventually end up so isolated that any polity is better than none. The willingness to put principle ahead of community ends in Anya's character putting community ahead of principle. Ultimately, ethics and politics have to work together. There is no workable ethics independent of politics, and there can be no sustainable politics that ignores ethics. A state that is morally decrepit will be rejected, and a morality that rejects the state ends in barbarism. Britain was unable to morally incorporate the Puritans, the Puritans were unable to morally incorporate William, and William's moral individualism drove his family into hell. What is needed is a state that is syncretic, that can accommodate many different forms of spirituality, but none of the people in this film have lived in a state that is remotely like that, and so none of them have the philosophical resources necessary to find a sustainable way to live together. The result is tragic and more than a little depressing. Eggers' films are captivating. They portray traditional values in a manner that is both faithful enough to get conservatives to watch, but terrifying enough to satisfy liberals in the end. You never get to the end of an Eggers film and go, oh, I wish we could return to that. 
He's managed to make Puritans, lighthouse keepers, and Vikings seem deeply otherworldly. He's made their value sets seem terrifying and foreign. I've now seen all three of his films, and there's something deeply ideological about this tendency. These films are, in part, meant to remind us that we're lucky to be modern, that we should be grateful for liberal pluralism. Many reviewers come away with this kind of simple take. I suspect it is the most common effect these films have on audiences. Many look at The Witch and go, oh, if only Anya's character grew up in a modern liberal society, she'd be fine. She just needs feminism. But this papers over the first dualism with the second. The first dualism, the swinging between theocratic states and barbaric voids, is superficially resolved by contrasting both states of affairs with modern liberalism. Yes, in the Middle Ages, you had to choose between obeying the church and struggling in the wilderness. But now, thanks to the modern liberal nation state, there is separation of church and state. Doesn't this solve all our problems? Liberal pluralism does indeed reconcile the state to many different forms of spiritualism, but it does this by excluding all of them from the political. It is a pluralism by universal exclusion rather than universal inclusion. It is not syncretic. It builds a wall between the public and the private and puts all the religions into ghettos. We can do better than this. Indeed, we must, because the liberal tendency to privatize the spiritual produces deep frustrations, often giving rise to the very theocratic tendencies liberals hope to avoid. For the deeply religiously musical person, to paraphrase Max Weber, what has been exiled must be exalted. I therefore call for a non-liberal pluralism, a pluralism of universal inclusion, rather than universal exclusion. That's what I got to start. Let's hear what Helen thinks. That was very interesting. <clears throat> Lots of points to pick up on later for conversation. So um, yes, this was an enjoyable film. I am not a horror fan for various reasons, mostly because I'm very influenceable and I find them too scary, but this was not um, terrifying, but it was interesting and it was well-made. So horror films, um, you know, there have been quite a lot of horror films over the recent years and obviously throughout history, horror films are often made um, at varying degrees of budget because it's possible to have audiences. So smaller films can, can have those sort of B-movie audiences and bigger films um, can sometimes be more easily financed precisely because they're horror. And because they're more easily financed, um, they don't have to be quite as good to um, get across the line. Although often to get across the line, one has to be bad enough. Um, but as in, um, let's not say ideologically bad enough, because that's often a requirement of financing in any um, sphere of life. I was um, thinking about recently the idea of dating apps. We talked about dating apps uh, a few times a couple of months ago and the dating app Hinge whose um, logo, uh, slogan is designed to be deleted. Well, the irony is that you do delete it and out of frustration potentially, or many people do, but um, in the slogan there is a bit of truth in that the deletion suggests some kind of failure as in um, there's a failure for the business. It hasn't really worked for the business, but there is a failure in the sustaining of using dating apps because if the dating app worked, you wouldn't have to use it. You know, Nina's example of her dad was a dentist whose practice was so um, successful that it was not worth as much as the failing dentist offices because they would have to always have a problem. They have to create a problem to sustain. So that's part of the reason why ideologically, um, films have to be ideologically bad enough sometimes to get finance, which is very frustrating. But that's a whole other issue. So horror films um, tend, to, tend to have audiences because they operate at this um, level, um, which is sort of super rational. In a way, they're kind of similar to porn. And porn, um, precisely because porn is porn, uh, the story and the artistic quality cannot be as good as a, um, a piece of uh, narrative fiction or, you know, a more, a non-expressedly um, li uh, libidinal form of art precisely because that art must be contradictory, whereas uh, porn is um, creating an affect, a soul affect. Uh, and I think horror sort of does the same thing. So often we've had sort of a lot of feminist horror recently, partly, you know, um, because there's this idea that women 
uh, and horror go hand in hand. I mean, there's a sort of this this question of hystericization, which I'll get in, into in terms of, of the horror genre. But also, sadly, you know, it's, it is more um, amenable to get financing and a lot of people, a lot of women, a lot of people find it difficult to get financing. So um, horror is often something that gets foregrounded, especially in terms of first films. But this film was really, really, really good, aside from it being horror. And horror films can be, of course, amazing uh, pieces of work, even though the horror genre has all these uh, tendencies. And I say there, you know, the similarity to porn in the in the accessing of affect, this soul affect, and obviously horror does the same thing in terms of fear, sexual arousal, and in horror, it's fear. But when the focus is on that one soul affect, precisely the you um, you cannot really access that more dialectical and complicated nature that like um, different types of uh, mark different types of art. But that's not to say that they can't do both. Um, and yes, yeah, so a lot of world construction, and obviously this happens in porn, uh, uh, relies on genre tropes. And even though we um, anticipate these tropes, we are still terrified. You know, this uh, film operates beyond the rational and especially when it comes to these sort of affect-related genres. But one thing that I think is really, really interesting in uh, horror, and also that kind of makes it, quote-unquote, easier to um, design a horror narrative, is the way that the antagonist, the baddie, the horror figure, doesn't make any sense. Because part of the issue in creating a narrative is that one has to give logic to every character that one has. And you have to give logic to, you know, a, a crazy person has a logic to them, an opponent has a logic and a story of their own. Um, in a sense, they say, so we have the spectrum of genres, of narrative genres. You have um, the detective story on one, one end and the action story on one end. And the detective story is very cerebral. And this, cere uh, you know, cerebral nature is related to the fact that the antagonist has this hidden, very, you know, step-by-step -step consequential um, series of uh, logical steps that they have retrospectively covered over. And all um, narratives operate in that sort of way, but that's the most extreme version. And the action is, is more kind of reactive and there's less hiding of this logical step, but it's, uh, it's more of a, um, a corporeal kind of like in the moment response and the detective novel is sort of more cerebral and the logic is hidden. But I would say actually potentially that the opposites aren't uh, the detective story and horror, but like uh, and an action, but rather the detective story and horror, because in a sense, part of the reason why horror, the way horror operates is it's terrifying precisely because the, the scary person, the scary monster doesn't make any sense. And I was thinking this with the witch in this film. It's like, what does she want? What's going on? Like, who is she? There seems to be no logic to it. And, um, you know, is it that they have uh, enacted some form of hubris? Is it that, you know, she's taking revenge? I mean, there isn't really any logic to it. And that's partly what is so terrifying. But that is partly what is so true about the horror genre. So having maybe been a little bit critical at the beginning, I actually think horror ha has this innate power to it because it elevates this notion that the other doesn't make sense. And the thing that's even more horrific, of course, that we as humans have to deal with is the fact that uh, individuals don't even make sense to themselves. <laughs> so, you know, this is maybe the horror genre is the profoundly anti-conspiracy um, theory genre, the conspiracy theory where we always want to assign logic to a big other, when in fact, not only is the system a shit show and the people running it slightly incompetent, just like everybody else, but they themselves are blind to their own selves, are um, blind to their own incompetences and know less than nothing. And they know less than nothing precisely because they are human and they speak. So this is something that we have to deal with. And it's a very, very terrifying fact. So maybe we could argue that the horror novel or the horror story kind of confronts us with that in, in a certain way. Um, and, you know, there is, there is this tendency, especially today, to have sort of a fe feminist kind of horror. I kind of um, don't appreciate the, um, I think, slight misreading of psychoanalytic theory that women are, in their essence, different, different to men. Obviously, we have different subjective structures, which 
some, you know, which align sort of with uh, gender categories, but not entirely. Um, and there is this sort of uh, maybe sensation within the hysteric of not knowing. Um, and maybe this draws some uh, people who write horror to the horror genre. I mean, there is obviously this question of the misogynist element of, of horror, where the woman is sort of bestial and base or something that needs to be tamed or whatever. But again, psychoanalytically speaking, um, misogyny really only comes from an over-elevation of the, the woman, as in just as Adam and Eve overvalued Eden because it was a utopia precisely because it had been lost. The mother becomes this elevated utopic figure precisely because her breast has been lost and then she can never live up to it, so she must be debased. So, yeah, I mean, firstly, there is a sort of dialectical dimension to misogyny, but um, I think that women aren't just, you know, these uh, obviously like crazy um you know, irrational figures. I think obviously women are capable of reason just as much as anybody else. Um, but the other thing that I kind of thought about was this idea of Christianity and the bastardization of good ideologies at times when people are under severe stress. Obviously, you know, there's Nietzsche's point of whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger, but there's a caveat before that phrase in terms of one has to be strong enough to be able to not fall into um, being made sicker by terrible events. And I think these events that these, this family are facing is so abject that their ideological um, crutch, Christianity, goes from what could originally have... And I think in Puritanism, obviously Puritanism is a sort of stoic kind of um, abstinence-based way to deal with the horror of desire. Um, but there are elements of Christianity that actually make one tarry with lack, make one tarry with desire. I mean, there's a line in this film about they're all sinners and they're all born sinners. Um, but how Christianity becomes this very toxic, very woke, very oppositional, hideous ideology. And in a sense, if these characters are being punished for anything, for some kind of hubris, maybe it is precisely because they themselves are satanic in their... Um, sick Christianity that has evolved as a response to the um, contradictions, the uncontrollable contradictions of life that make drive them towards oppositional scapegoating. Of course, uh, in many aspects of the Bible, there is um, analyses of um, scapegoating and mechanisms and ideas of how to overcome scapegoating, how to analyze scapegoating, being a good Samaritan, that Christ was this figure who united um, Jews and Gentiles around lack. And then what we see in this period of time and this horrible period, um, a very, very woke, very toxic ideology. So perhaps they are the devils and they're being punished for their devilish Christianity. All right. So this was Nina's pick. And so Nina goes last. What do you got, <laughs> Nina? Oh, gosh. Well, I've, I've just returned from uh, the countryside in Norway, um, and it was quite a pagan experience in many ways. <laughs> uh, and I spent a lot of time, when it was sunny, lying outside and listening to the birds and uh, hanging out with the trees and the forests and this kind of thing. And, and uh, so sometimes I do find it difficult not to think that, that nature is probably the uh, the best thing to live for, if you see what I mean, like in its its very uh, curious combination of of repetition and surprise. Um, so I did very much enjoy this film. <laughs> uh, you may not be surprised to to hear. Um, it it's interesting because of course we did uh, review the the lighthouse, um, which I didn't like so much, um, but I did like the Northman, um, which I saw in the cinema recently. As well, and I, I think probably some of the reasons I like this film in particular, I mean, not not least because uh, I think the question of womanhood is explored in the film. And I think uh, Anna Taylor-Joy is a fantastic actress. I think uh, there's something very uh, beautiful about this question of desire and the mirroring of kind of incest and magic and the I, I guess I spe the undecidability of um 
whether things are natural or supernatural. And I think this film really does that brilliantly. I think The Lighthouse is too... I mean, okay, The Lighthouse is a film about men in a claustrophobic situation and it's it, it kind of spirals in a sort of masculine way. But I think this film is superior as The Northman is also superior to The Lighthouse. But I suppose it's to do with this um, question of where you place nature or where nature resides and where magic resides. And... I suppose, like, the absolute undecidability of who is on which side when. Like, it, the Northman, I think, expresses this also. Like, the um, in a sort of pre-Christian universe or in a pre-liberal universe, the decision about goodness is absolutely personal in a strange way. Like, you can, you can kind of uh, adopt all of these sorts of regulations and these rules and... It's completely community bound. And I, I take Benjamin's point about the social dimension. Like, so you have at least three kinds of ostr ostracization in this film. So the first of all, the Puritans moving from England, then you have the kind of ostracization of the family who are, may or may not be too fanatical or too religious. And then you have the ostracization from nature um, and the ostracization from each other, right? So I, the, paranoia that sets in um in the question of um proximity because you both have the question of incest and the question of twins in this film right which René Girard say says is basically like um the question of the uncanny you know and obviously we know that the incest taboo is basically the foundation of civilization so what the witch is is again, completely undecidable. The witch is like the mirror of desire, right? So the witch is anything that you can't bear shining back at you, whether it's suspicion about your family, whether it's the incest taboo, whether it's your own desire for a different kind of life. And I think one of the brilliant things about this film is the way in which the forest is itself a character. Um, and I was thinking about uh, similar filmmakers and uh, I think Lars von Trier's Antichrist is one of the only other films that uh, makes the forest a character. Um, and to give nature this particular kind of role, basically, as something which is both unknown, desirable, familiar, but dis disfamiliar. And I think modernity is basically like, okay, so I, I, I think filmmakers like um, Ari Aster, and Robert Eggers, some of what they're doing is kind of participating in a sort of fantasy nostalgia for something that we think we once knew, but we don't, right? So we're all liberal modern subjects is part of the horror. And part of the horror of what they're doing in relation to horror is revealing our own commitment or our own relationship to, um, to nature that we don't know, basically. Which is which is blocked from us, however much we fantasize about, you know, commuting with the sun or I don't know, some sort of like spirit animals or whatever. And all of these things return constantly, right? In modernity. Like people always go on about which animal they are or I don't know, like <laughs> um star signs or, you know, the Frankfurt School analyzed this very well, like this kind of um I don't know, return of the the repressed, but it's not even repressed because we don't have a memory of it. Um, and we are kind of alien to ourselves and to 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 nature. Um, I don't know how to put it. So, so part of the ideological role of these films is to, I mean, Benjamin puts it in an interesting way negatively to say, to remind us of the kind of uh, gratitude we owe liberal culture, right? The fact that we are not beholden to woodland spirits or the threat of being eaten by wolves most of the time for example but at the same time there's some there's a loss or there's a kind of perceived loss of this uh kind of directness um i i slightly disagree with helen in the sense of making this comparison between horror and porn i do agree that they both play off of a certain kind of immediate sensation or a stimulation so pornography would say is 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 designed to um 
generate a physiological reaction um, regardless of our rational, I don't know, uh, self-understanding. I I think horror has more of an aesthetic quality. Like, we can sort of have more of a rational relationship to what we choose to be horrified by or with. Um, and I think, obviously, I'm kind of very tuned to folk horror <laughs> as a genre, musically and cinematically and personally, and also just because I grew up in the countryside and you see lots of dead animals all the time. <laughs> so you get used to it and you, I don't know, it becomes maybe part of your libidinal economy, right? Like you, you, you know, my mum used to run over pheasants so we could eat them for dinner. You know, when the rabbits got myxomatosis, you would have to kill them. Um, you you see burning pies of animals because of foot and mouth and you hear stories of cows being bolt gunned because of CJD. And, it you know, you just, you sort of get, I saw cows struck by lightning and like weird shit. Like <laughs> if you live in the countryside, like, like nature is very violent and very brutal and unforgiving. And, uh, and the city, I mean, it, it just concretes over all of that stuff. So, uh, of course, I have maybe a an aesthetic uh, affiliation or attachment to this kind, this genre of of film. Um, at the same time, I thought the I thought what its ultimate strength was. I'll finish on this point: is is its undecidability, basically, which is to do with our nature, our relationship to nature, our relationship to su super nature. And the way in which um, social and cultural and linguistic things play into that uh, absolute undecidability, you know, and that basically what it means to call somebody a witch or what it means to decide that something is evil is ultimately a matter of interpretation in any given age. Um, and that nature can be interpreted in such um, distinct ways that the only way to defend yourself sometimes is to invoke nature itself against other people invoking nature. All right. So it sounds like Nina has seen all three of the Eggers films and is, which one is your favorite? Is it the witch or is it Northmoon? Um, I, th I think probably the witch because it's, it's, um, it's cleaner. I mean, I like the Northman, but it's it's this is ultimately a film, and this is a partisan point. But it's Northman is ultimately a film about male violence, and it's very interesting as such. But I've also spent like four years thinking about men and male violence, <laughs> so I I I think um, the witch because I uh, I also as in Midsummer, there's also a feminist. Um, complication also with it follows which is not a folk horror film but is a very good horror recent horror film which is to do with what it means to be female in modernity and i think these male directors um are doing something very complicated uh and undecidable actually with what it means for that type of nature to still exist and they don't really know what to do with it and that so it's open-ended right so I think the witch is more interesting. The Northman concludes with a mutually violent scene, which is uh, apex paganism <laughs> and a mythos. Uh, and I, you know, I really, I really, really enjoyed this film. Um, but it's more, it's closer to like a Marvel normal film. Whereas I think the witch is because of its um, constraints, like Helen was saying, like it's, it's interesting, like, if you have less money to make a horror film is um, easier in some ways. Right. Um, so then you'd put the lighthouse below both of those. Yeah. <laughs> See, I put the lighthouse first, the witch second and Northman third. I thought you didn't like the lighthouse. Did you like it? Yeah, I yeah, liked Benjamin it. Yeah, Benjamin was the de greatest defender, defender of this I was film. Its, yeah, 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 I was the defender of the lighthouse. No, no, so it's funny because I had a fantastic reading of the film. Yeah, he did. He did. I, I, the funny <laughs> thing is I, always, I feel like you and I, Benjamin, tend to 95% of the time have the same 
you know, like likes and dislikes. <laughs> so I'm surprised, but I Bias. much prefer. I much preferred this. I should say, I that's interesting. I like your point about um, porn. I should say, I am. I'm kind of pro porn. So it's not a. It's not a kind of. It's not but a. But why? But why are you pro? No, I'm not pro. Is in like the way it, ideological because I think it's really difficult to kind of parse out what's ideological and what's neutral today. And obviously, the sex work pornification. Um, you know, liberal, liberal hijacking of everything, the sexification of everything, all this stuff is highly ideological. But outside of the ideological kind of like these elements, you know, the way things are weaponized in order to destroy um, social fabric for profit. Um, Aside from that, then I think any, I think the thing with like the Christianity stuff in this, it's like to go from the Paulinian reading of the Bible, for example, to the stuff that they're doing here is just like, you know, you, you like philosophically speaking, even though aesthetically it's the same, can you say it's the same thing? It's like precisely the opposite. So I have nothing against like, uh, I've, I've never. I didn't. What do I know? I've never watched porn, so I can't. I can't really speak to it. But well, like, you've never. You've never seen any pornography. No, I've never whatsoever. seen pornography in my life. No. Um, because maybe I just like. Well, why are you defending it then? Well, then because I don't think it's worse than any than than I. I don't think that. I think when porn today is critiqued. You know, and potentially rightly so, it's, it's critiqued at the level of this ideological hijacking of something that people kind of do and people kind of experience. And it's just sort of not quite, it's this, it's this moralization related to it that I find horrific. Just as like the moralization of certain identity characteristic, characteristics or identity quote unquote groups or, um, the push, the ideological pushing of people towards things that have moral virtue when they don't. But I mean, liberal ideology today is pro pornography. Yeah, it is pro. One hundred percent is pro pornography. Yeah, and pro sex work and yeah. pro the sexual revolution. Yeah, and no, one hundred percent. And I, I mean, like, I don't yeah. know. My my objection to pornography is at least twofold, which would be one, it destroys the imagination, as in you can lead a much more subtle and magical and beautiful life if you are beholden to your own ideas, if you so, I mean, mm -hmm. and images. Yeah. And that mm -hmm. pornography is like very, very destructive of your capacity to imagine. Like it's a form of nihilism that involves people who are often on drugs or who are fucked up performing sex with someone they don't fancy. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, and I, I get and all of these things, and for those reasons, okay, when I say I'm pro-porn, I'm not pro-porn in the way that, like, this is this stuff where all of those contradictions are papered over and it's horrendous. That's, but I'm not, I'm not more against it than any other, like, because I feel like, you know, a banning of porn makes, obviously, the return of the repressed makes it more uh, enticing sure. to people that that any one practice or, and I think partly the thing is, part of the reason why we have all this pro this, pro that, pro the other, is precisely because it, ha it was repressed in the past because of uh, an, an not a non-conscious understanding, as in a not having come to consciousness of the way that sex functions. There is this idea of a purification of sex, which means that in certain periods of time, people were, um, oppressed because of their sexual their sexuality, which means that today in this world of reverse oppression, oppression Olympics, precisely because it's more oppressive to disguise the oppression, you get the over engagement with people with forms of desire that were previously outcast, rather than an understanding that we are all marked by the same thing that made those people outcasts in the first place. So then. If you, do you see what I mean? So it's, it's only um, pushed upon us today precisely because it was so repressed in the past. And I, I like to say that sex work is work, but work is prostitution. Well, exactly. No, sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think pretty much everything we do in, in modern society to cope with capitalism is problematic. Mm-hmm. And prostitution and, uh, and pornography are in that list of things people do to cope with capitalism. Uh, and I think the culture war tends to focus on the symptoms of the thing and whether you're pro or anti different expressions. But the more fundamental thing is what drives people to want to do that rather than say, you know, to make to love to it. somebody or to have to do that uh, rather than to make love with somebody that they care about. Or to not have sex at all. <laughs> yeah. Or to not have sex at all or whatever else it is that we might you know, expect people to, to reasonably do. You know, what they would do in a healthy society, whether it's depending on your attitude to natalism, you know, what would people do in a society where they weren't pushed to try to fulfill this fantasy through some kind of capitalized upon desire? No, and it's, yeah, and it's terrible. I mean, the thing that's really awful today about this ideological hijacking of forms of desire that were you know, cast out, cast as different in the past. And because of that, just as the way, you know, you say that the calling people witches, it makes me think of the word Nazi today. And the funny thing is, is that the Nazis, it was almost almost supernatural how evil that form of government was. And it's like, so so this is the sort of supernatural kind of flavor to this, you're a Nazi, you're a Nazi, you're a Nazi. Like the the witches in, you know, the, the name calling of witch in... That period, obviously, we're talking about a horror film, so potentially these people are witches you know, in that in that order of things. Um, but yeah, no, it's terrible how um, uh, you know part of, part and it, what, you know obviously these 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 ideological veils contain within them. It's like the Titanic when it sank. It was captivating precisely because there's it captured so many different dynamics like a prism at the same time, and it's like things like these cultural dynamics. It's not just that they're an ideological veil for, you know, oppression and all this kind of stuff. But also it's, it's, I mean, it's an ideological veil for oppression in another way where people are so proletarianized where they have to sell their bodies for sex. And it's seen as a sort of like, you know, wonderful lifestyle choice, which is awful. But at the same time, being anti-sex work is almost like, well, what about the people who have, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a material question, not just a not just a like sort of aesthetic or cultural one. Like why why are we in such an abject state that people have no choice but to? This is the reification that this kind of system demands. If we're going to have people who do certain jobs or in certain social roles, they have to persuade themselves that not only is, is what they do acceptable, but that it's good and necessary and that they're fulfilling their purpose on earth by doing those things. And so we tell ourselves all sorts of stories about how various miserable bullshit jobs that provide no real value to anybody are important and necessary and oh so critical because everybody has to be kept in work because that's the only way this system can distribute the funds necessary for people to pay their bills and have their basic needs met. And that's what it all fundamentally comes back to. And so the work of, of ideology is finding ways to rationalize all of these terrible social roles that don't provide anybody any sense of fulfillment, that don't provide any uh, you know, real positive value to the communities that uh, people participate in, but are required by the particular economic system that we have. And so we have to find some way to persuade ourselves that we're accomplishing something for ourselves or for other people by doing all sorts of stuff that is is counterproductive for us and and doesn't do very much at all or is counterproductive for others. But it's interesting from an anthropological point of view, like why we still need categories of evil, like whether it's witch or Nazi or whatever. And as someone who's been called a witch and a Nazi (laughs) (laughs) repeatedly, um, (laughs) uh, you know, I was called a witch at school. Really? Um, Yeah, of course. I I think basically like witch means... A woman who is cleverer than you, basically, at a certain point, or a witch is like a wise woman. A witch is someone who doesn't—I don't know. It, like it's, mm-hmm. it's a woman that you can't place into a pre-existing category, and that upsets you or something like that, right? Like it's, it's, it's a woman who is neither your mother nor your sister or your girlfriend or I don't know. Like it's, 
but it's something kind of unknown and upsetting and <laughs> um, a witch has no place in the community to call someone a witch is to say that they have no place among you yes i suppose here's, so here's a question so you know you talked about the sort of return to tarot cards and crystals and whatever what you call it astrolog- or astro- astrology mm. do you think there's sort of um you know tiktoky witchy stuff that's like the same or in the same vein like i'm a witch i'm a this that and the other sawin and all this kind of stuff is do you think that's the same, in the same vein yeah i don't know I, th- I think there's a kind of palatable way in which nature is always reincorporated as second nature right or as a, a sort of consumerist version of this thing which is presented very well in in robert eggers film which is undecidable right which is you can't tell where where the horror is coming from, <laughs> like whether it's from you, your desire, the outside world, your family, you know, like uh, it's 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 always better to give it a name and to think you control it. Like so, so the witch, I don't know, the teenage witch would be someone who is like, I don't know what's going on in my life. I've got my period. It's horrible. I don't know how to cope. Uh, I can sort of go like star signs and. You know, like this gives me a meaning, it gives me some sort of purpose. Like I can pretend that I have control over my own body, at least, or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind There's of. There's a moment in the in the film where the where Anya worries that she might be the witch. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Where mm-hmm. she's milking the female cow and blood comes out. Yeah. She r- worries that maybe she is the witch and she doesn't know. Well, this is, I mean, this is, it is true. Like, you know, I really like the way you describe that, Nina, in terms of like, this is, you know, this is contradiction. This is the uncontrolled, this is the illogic that's inherent in the universe. The fact that it all slips away, that it all folds into uncontrollability at a certain point. And we have to deal with that. And obviously in this period of time when there is less, you know, um, scientific handle on the dialectical nature of reality, but it's still there and it's still, you know, I'm thinking about a project I'm working on at the moment and there are certain difficulties that are happening that are difficult to pinpoint into one single um, event because there's a whole wider economic economic system situation that's, you know, kind of crumbling in a way. There are ways that individuals and groups are responding to that and there are all kinds of interpersonal things. And it is really tempting for one to oppositionalize and to be like, it's it's because of that. It's because of that. Is because of this. It all also to be like um, this sort of utopian kind of if only in another version of reality. Because you know, obviously, reality at every moment could be something else. At a certain point, you know, you could choose this thing and you know go through this door, or whatever. And we have this imagination of according to you know, if only we had chosen this other route, there is this other possible world. And I think Gigi always talks about how we have to kill. God, not only in our reality, but in all other all other realities as well. So, um, and that relates to dealing with that contradiction in the present, because we want to render it contingent that if only this, then we wouldn't be experiencing it, or if only for that person, we wouldn't be experiencing it. And it's interesting how, yeah, the management of that involves often seeing yourself as bad. And I think you know when you when you're a child, Melanie Klein talks about this a lot: the paranoid schizoid position that you go through when you. Um, entering into subjectivity and you kind of realize that the world is really fucking messy and difficult and when you come to experience it in yourself and you realize that there are bad aspects to you you enter you know this sort of hegelian beautiful soul situation and you cast the baddie out as to somebody in the cupboard but it's really because you yourself know that you're pretty bad yourself um and again it's really interesting how that happens that sort of shifting of the scapegoat obviously the fact that it's a goat and it's a scapegoat, you know, <laughs> it's sort of going, it's constantly being shifted. And often, this is the thing about the, the white liberal, quote unquote, stupidity um, of that, you know, not that white liberals are stupid, but that, you know, I'm saying quote unquote, uh, when somebody calls themselves as a white person, especially worse than everybody else, it's precisely the same thing as casting it out onto the other person. It's the of same course. management and it's the I same I mean, narcissism goes both ways, right? Yeah, You're either exactly. the best person in the universe or the worst person in the universe. Exactly. Like yeah. both of these positions are narcissistic. Mm-hmm. You know, the the kind of um, truly ambivalent psychoanalytic position is to say, I'm neither the worst person nor the best person. <laughs> 
but I'm a person, right? And to say, I, you know, I, I've made mistakes, I've done terrible things and I must forgive and forgive myself and forgive others and, I, you know, and all of that kind of thing. And I think, yeah, I had to put it, but I mean, I mean obviously I'm completely interested in difference, right? I think that the celebration and recognition of difference is truly anti-fascist, Right. I, I think that people who call themselves anti-fascist are actually interested in homogeneity and a totalitarian position on belief and who you support and so on. And I don't think they're anti-fascists at all. I think what anti-fascism really is, is uh, admiration and recognition and uh, respect for difference. Valuing diversity of value diversity, cognitive diversity, substantive forms yes. of diversity, I, I, not just every, aesthetic res- diversity. Yeah, exactly. In every respect, like the, the you know, to be um, open <laughs> to difference, you know, the fact that men and women are different, the fact that people from different cultures are different in a beautiful and wonderful way, right? Like not to be afraid of it, not to hate it, not to... Assim- want to assimilate it or colonize it, but to be like, wow, you know? <laughs> yeah, and this is a problem with liberal pluralism. It's not that pluralist. No, no, it, it's not it achieves its pluralism by siloing everything that doesn't really fit neatly exactly. within it into these different private civil society ghetto zones. And then it says, well, you can't come into politics with that. You can go and do that in your little space, but you can't bring that into politics. Meanwhile, all the things that are thoroughgoingly compatible with it, it completely politicizes. Every kind of technocratic or scientistic discourse that it views as compatible with itself, it totally politicizes all of that. So it false includes a lot. Yes. And to really have inclusion is to have a space in politics in for the values, the real substantive values that people have that are different and for making political space for there to be people in your society who value completely different things uh, that have values that have very little in common with one another, but to still make it so that those people can live together and not feel threatened. But by what about this, these values that are not political? I mean, this is this is one of the major problems. I mean, the Greeks pre-exclude what is not political by by talking about the oikos, you know, like there are certain people who don't participate in the polis, a priori, if you see what I mean. Well, there has to be a political space for them in the sense that the polity has to have room for those people but in it. But they're not political. There are certain modes of being that are not political. In us but all. They have to be, they have to be, uh, there has to be space for us to do those other things. And politics is in part about creating the space for people to do non-political things. Right, but but the, you still have this question of who decides what the quantity and measure of space is. Like this is this is very complicated, right? Right, and that's why we can't get away from the politics of even the things that seem non-political because there's still this question of there being space for those things mm. and how much space. And that's still a political question. But the non-political will never beat the political <laughs> at this juncture. If you see what I mean, what do you mean it will never beat it? Like, I don't know, something that's extra political, like whether it's like the spiritual or the practical, will never win against the... Blit- like the political has won as such. Like, you know, geopolitics is also... Poli- like, glo- you know, the politicization of everything is the domination... the, the um, victory of the political. Maybe I've, maybe I've gone too far in agreeing to first the premise that you can make a, a clean division between the political and the not. Yeah. Because I think this distinction between, say, if you're going to juxtapose the spiritual with the political, I have, a, I have an objection to that because I don't think that those things can be firmly separated. And when you do separate them, you make them enemies of each other. And that produces a negative dualistic relationship, which okay, w- well, results I mean, we, in yeah, mutual destruction. We need destruction. to define the political. So the political for me would be something like um, a potentially antagonistic uh, system of, of discourse about how we all live together or something like that. Sounds good. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> I don't see anything wrong with that. But doesn't, that's the it doesn't everything fall into that category in a way? No. That, 
No, but the thing is, okay, I agree. When you say like the supremacy of like geopolitics, I think what we have in politics is precisely not political because it is the it's the sort of received wisdom that this is superior to that, that this is the way it is, that this is it, that this looks political, that, you know, like it's like the identity categories because it's made, so psychoanalysis is supposed to get you to, you to a point where you don't have to self-narrativize all the time. And obviously under liberal capitalism, you have to self-narrativize precisely because you're, your value, you know, you have no inherent value. You have to sell your value. So you have to have some kind of um, commodity. So in narrativizing yourself, you are commoditized. And so when you have these um, identity categories, they're precisely not to be like, this is how I'm different. You know, you are, you are um, the same insofar as, you know, you're different because you might accumulate slightly, this is, you know, three of those, two of those, Pokemon Go of those or whatever. But you're still defining yourself according to a category to create a narrative. And the narrative is reliant on a certain discourse and meaning that is received by that category. So you're precisely not really getting to the heart of your own identity, which itself, when you actually have an, you know, a sense of how you are formed subjectively, you should sort of not need to narrativize as much. But the point being is that like what we have as politics is precisely non-political because politics is always just the tarrying. And as soon as you turn it into uh, received wisdom, or such, I would say the scientific method, right? Like as, as soon as you're not doing the I don't know, then it's not politics. It's not science. Well, there's a distributive aspect to politics. Uh, it's not always distributing resources. It can be distributing time or distributing space. So if we're to have time for something that we deem private or we deem non-political, uh, if there is such a category, uh, then politics has to distribute time for that purpose and has to create and protect time for that purpose. And the only way that there can be time for that purpose is to politically defend that time. That would be kind of my. But okay, my so talking about um, politics, though. Well, not politics, but you know that the, the non-totalitarian, because totalitarianism is never total enough. It has to require a scapegoat that is not within its total. Nazism is the you know prime example. Um, would something like porn not fit into something that is? That, that houses everything. Wait, well, porn? Yes, yeah, just to get back, because I want to get to this, this thing of like why, I, I think I understand why porn is particularly bad for some people. But I think it's more to do with like say, industrial farming is bad because of the political economy rather than farming meat is bad, right? It's a it's a visceral confrontation with the consequences of the kind of system that we have. Yeah, I think and that's so a lot true. Of that's very true. Are that's comfortable true, yeah. with the overall system, mm -hmm. but when you confront them with yeah. certain visceral expressions of yeah. that system, they don't like those expressions. So then they want to believe that they can get rid of the expression without having to throw all the rest of it out. But all the rest of it is what leads to the exactly. visceral expression. Exactly. But it is. And so. Yeah. By vilifying a particular cultural expression of capitalism without critiquing capitalism, we can imagine a kind of purified capitalism that is morally okay. And that's why culture war debates focus so heavily on particular expressions of this system, because the aim is to try to reject the particular expression without rejecting the system which produces the expression. Yeah. And of course, then it gets you into an endless, unending struggle because you're never going to be able to abolish expressions of this kind without changing the system which creates them. So if you go on an endless crusade about any given cultural issue uh, until you confront the real reasons why we have that behavior, why we have those tendencies in society, you, you don't get rid of it. It's like we've had this whole thing in the States recently about guns again because we've had another school shooting. And you have the whole same debate about, you know, is it because we have bad gun laws? Is it because we don't have good enough mental health provision? What have you? Really, what it is, is we have people who are deeply alienated because they have no decent social roles open or available to them. Nothing that's meaningful that they can do with their lives. No sense of community, no sense of purpose, no sense of rootedness. 
And so they get upset and they take it out on other people. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. As long as we have people who feel that way, we're going to have various forms of problems and you can change the way the police work. You can get rid of the police. You can change the number of guns that are out there. You can change the amount of of mental health provision that's available. If you don't confront that structural thing, then you get into trouble. We had we did a whole episode on what's left about this way, way back in the day about the guns issue and about how there's this kind of first level view of the guns where it's about, you know, actually the gun control laws, another view that's about the psychology and the mental health. But the deeper issue is capitalism and how capitalism produces alienated, miserable young men at large, large, large numbers of them. So that even if sometimes any percentage become violent, that becomes a significant endemic thing that we all have to deal with. And similarly, when we get kind of focused on any other cultural issue, there's always some deeper structural set of reasons why we have that thing, why it's so dominant. And you could try to abolish the particular thing. Uh, you know, you could try to abolish drugs or you can try to abolish porn. Or you can try to abolish prostitution. Any of these expressions, if you don't get into the capitalism, Mm-hmm. then you have a problem. And, and this is the reason why social conservatives struggle so much. They don't confront the economic reasons for the cultural stuff that they don't like. They're not willing to tarry mm-hmm. with that. Well, I don't know. I, th- I think that's probably a, a nice moment. Oh, nice is not the right word. A good moment <laughs> where we're at, where I think social conservatives and old school Marxists and leftists are trying to think about the same things together, right? I, I feel like... Yeah, I, contingently know. maybe because I think really that which is symptomatic of our, pro- of our issues in capitalism happen to be today um, liberal issues. But, it, you know, it's interesting because um, I saw on social media in response to, by the way, this is just hilarious, I just saw this, this lipstick on the table and the, the type of lipstick, the, like, name for this is I'm kind. Like, what the fuck? Like, hate that kindness stuff. Anyway, but, um, so, uh, or, like, it's usually, like, I'm a bitch or, like, man-eater. And this is, like, I'm kind. Anyway, don't know whether that just jumped out at me. But, um, oh, yeah, no, the reason why it made me think of was that on social media, there was this real response that, I saw, and I don't know, you know, if it was a general thing, which was sort of like, ah, solved it related to all of these terrible shootings that have happened. Like, I'm a good person and I've solved it, which is everybody just handing their guns. But that attitude of, oh, I've solved it and, oh, be nice and, oh, it's just this and, oh, I'm a good... You know, you really see... I really get a lot of annoyment looking at liberal ideologically, a liberal ideological Twitter where it's all very kind of like... Oh, but it's so obvious. Oh, we're educated. Oh, it's this. Oh, like, da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da. I'll give you some examples. Maybe in the break, on the B side, I'll see if I can find examples of this, where it's just like received wisdom, sense certainty, like, oh, I'm nice. Oh, the right thing to do is this. Oh, I'm kind. Um, But this sort of hand in the gun thing, but it's precisely that logic, that um, blanching puritanical logic that has, that is, so um, structurally part of the capitalist system that creates the dissatisfaction in the first place. And this, this inability to tarry, this inability to confront con- uh, contradiction and this constant attempt to purify where the returned repress will come even we, more Yeah, forcefully. we publish in, in Compact, we publish a very interesting piece by Jeff Schillenberger, which I think was an unfinished piece in some ways, but it, it tried to talk about the logic of shooting in relation to the question of suicide, uh, of su- sacrifice, sorry, um, in a kind of anthropological way, right? So it's like in modernity, we think that we are over sacrifice, right? Uh-huh. That there is no, you know, we don't need sacrifice anymore. Sacrifice is for primitives. It's, you know, people killing people in the name of the sun god or whatever. Like we need to, yeah, burn witches in order to like stop cattle. Uh, producing blood and produce milk instead or whatever, right? So, but actually all we've done is buried the need for sacrifice, right? And we pretend that we don't need it, but it's actually everywhere, like in the mass murder of animals, in the slaughter, nihilistic slaughter of children, 
and so on and so forth, right? Like in the everyday exploitation of the worker yes. who is exploited, yeah, course, so that we can course. do philosophy. Yeah, of course, yeah. right? <laughs> we sacrifice most of the lives of the people in our society so that a small number of us can live well, right? Uh, but there, there's, uh, I do want to say something about what you said earlier about this kind of effort to, you know, have a a dialogue with social conservatism that gets past this. I think it's in large part an effort to bring back or reconstruct or maybe build anew in the Anglosphere, the continental European alliance between democratic socialists and Christian Democrats mm -hmm. that obtained in the 50s and 60s and 70s in a lot of European countries. Fair enough. And I think that a lot of people in the Anglosphere who are very critical of this and think it's like some kind of right wing thing don't have much awareness of the way in which socialist parties in continental Europe worked with Christian Democrats yeah. in the post-war era. That the whole Central European welfare state that people love uh, and talk about, in, in so far as you like any of that, that comes from an alliance between Christians and socialists. There's no way uh, around that. Uh, now, I think that we're seeing some of the inadequacies of that as a strategy because that alliance has broken down totally in Central Europe. And now the left in Central Europe is totally estranged from the Christian Democrats. The Christian Democrats have largely moved to the right and have tended to form coalitions with right wing parties in more recent years. And so I think uh, I'm not sure that it will work. Yeah. Um, but that's what people are trying to do. I and agree. I think that you know, it, it's an interesting thing to potentially try to do. It's, it's a strategy that should be discussed and should be thought about uh, in the States. There's a kind of minority of people who are, you know, in, for instance, the compact space doing that. That's a very new thing in the United States because it's been so long since really there was any kind of dialogue between anybody remotely on the left and anybody uh, who's a who's Christian, in part because the version of the left that you get in the United States is very libertarian, socialist, very anarchist in orientation. It's not Marxist. The Marxists were in Europe more structural and, and therefore more willing to interface with the, the Christians and, and so on. Anyway, I have one this more is point. a lot of Can I of make stuff? one more point about the gun shooting? Okay. Is that okay? Because basically, something that I just realized, that if you understand what the unconscious drive to mass shooting is, you understand that it is the same unconscious drive to the Puritan who says, oh, so nice, take everybody's guns away. And that is jouissance, which is we feel so alienated. We are so... Um, the utopian vision of what we should have and how we should, should fulfill what be fulfilled while similar, simultaneously having none of it um, creates within us this feeling that the other has so much resource and is getting you know, so much libidinal energy and having and doing what they want because we can't imagine that life can be this shit for everybody. But it is. We have created a system that's this shit. But the mass shooter is precisely doing um, a cancelling of the jouissance of the other. So going in and, and deleting, killing those who he or she, I don't know, believes. And this is the terrorist, you know, the, the puritanical terrorist who believes that you know, the, the people of the Ariana Grande concert are having all this fun and it needs to be you know, taken away from them. In the same way, this is what the person who doesn't understand why these mass shootings are happening related to the economic and libidinal system in which we live, where they think, again, this puritanical idea where they have this, if only I had that, then it would all be great, but you will never get that. This um, advertised image, this sort of celebrity culture image is impossible precisely because of the dialectical nature of reality. And so the more we are fed it, the more we must imagine create enemies behind whom it exists. So the Puritan does the same thing where they think they can control reality, blanch reality, but they have to have these contingent enemies who they believe are having all the libidinal energy and all of this sort of force and mechanized force. But it's the same logic. And some don't have their hands dirty because the contingent manifestation of the violence is in one group and the other group who tends to rely on the extreme exploitation and alienation of the other group, the violence that they confront, live in this sort of purified world. But it is the same logic. Sorry. All right, so we're gonna wrap up because we're over an hour.
we're going to go and do the B-side, but I think we're going to talk about marches. Marches of varying kinds, people marching and marching for, for different reasons, or maybe all the same reason. We're going to go and do the act. So thank you guys so much for listening, and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. bye bye